0: Have you ever wondered what makes people capable of creating changes that impact their lives and the world around them? What is their way of thinking, their mentality, their patterns, their perceptions of the world, their reactions to different live events? What influences them? My name is Cristina Puyol, and I invite you to join me in this adventure where we will explore together the mind of change makers. We are starting a new year and as I reflect back, it's now two years into this COVID period of time. My brother said back in 2020 that this will take more than 2020 and 2021 and that we will carry on and at least until 2022. And he was right. Many talk about the new normal or going back to normal or getting back to normal. But what is normal or the new normal for that matter? Usually we call normal. That which seems familiar, even though it may look like paranoia after getting out of that normal. Think of when smoking in movies was normal. Actually, smoking everywhere was normal. A hundred years ago, it was not only common for doctors to dismiss the risks of smoking, but sometimes they would also appear in tobacco advertising saying things like cigarettes provide temporary relief of asthma. Now, these ads often feature very doctorly-looking faces and declare such nonsense as 20,679 physicians agree that cigarettes are awesome and an eminent scientist writes that cigarettes are no worse for you than a glass of water. However, these doctors and eminent scientists will usually remind a name, anonymous. Also, years ago, asbestos was a great building material. And also nowadays, fastening the seat belt is an automatic gesture when getting into a car in general, but there was a time when no vehicle was equipped with them as standard. In Spain, their mandatory use was not imposed until not so distant year 1975, and the passengers in the rear seats did not have to fasten it until the year of the Barcelona Olympics 1992. In the USA, by the early 1960s, seatbelts were optional equipment on most American cars, but that didn't really change anything. Most people didn't want them, and even those who had them mostly didn't use them. By 1966, only 30% of cars on the road in America had seatbelts, and only 44% of the people who drove those cars used them full-time, which means that less than 50% of the drivers were using seatbelts. In 1968, they finally passed a law requiring seatbelts as standard equipment in all cars, but that still didn't change anything. And it wasn't just because people didn't like the idea of a seatbelt. It was also because auto manufacturers deliberately designed the belts to be uncomfortable as kind of a nose-thumb to government regulations. And that persistent hostility was largely the reason it took so long for anyone to actually pass real laws. And that persistent hostility was largely the reason it took so long for anyone to actually pass real laws. The first mandatory seatbelt law didn't reach the books until around mid-70s. And I know you might say, well, in any case, this is not normal in many parts of the world. And exactly that's my point. What's normal here is not there. And what's normal today may not be normal tomorrow. That is why I ask... What is the new normal anyway? There is a period of time after a hard time or a tragedy, like losing a family member, losing a job, losing a home, suffering an accident, losing a physical sense, where those going through that tragedy or situation are mourning many things, the job, the home, in my personal case, my hearing, or loved ones. But also during that time, They experience in mourning the loss of their normality, the things or people that they might have taken for granted, the things that define their normality. Who knew now our new normal would include wearing masks in dance classes? Who knew our new normal would include New Year's celebration over Zoom? Who knew many local businesses would go out of business so fast? So what can help us survive or thrive in a new normal, whatever that is? The Stockdale Paradox, made famous in James Collins' best-selling book, From Good to Great, and the related discipline of survival psychology, contains wisdom for how we can manage an unrolling crisis, according to Boris Groisberg and Robin Abrahams and also Mark Pollock. I will also talk in this episode about a tool that is potent when wanting to tune into possibilities and better health. So what is the Stockdale Paradox? Taken from the book Good to Great by Jim Collins, the Stockdale paradox refers to Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest-ranking United States military officer in the Hanoi Hilton Prisoner of War camp during the height of the Vietnam War. Tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from 1965 to 1973, Stockdale lived out the war without any prisoners' rights no set release date, and no certainty as to whether he would even survive to see his family again. Before meeting Stockdale, Jim read In Love and War. The book, Stockdale and his wife had written in alternating chapters, chronicling their experiences during those eight years. Jim found himself getting very depressed. And as Jim says in his book, It just seemed so bleak, the uncertainty of his fate, the brutality of his captors, and so forth. And then it dawned on me. Here I am sitting in my warm and comfortable office, looking out over the beautiful Stanford campus on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. I'm getting depressed reading these, and I know the end of the story. I know that he gets out, reunites with his family, becomes a national hero, and gets to spend the later years of his life studying philosophy on this same beautiful campus. If it feels depressing for me, how on earth did he deal with it when he was actually there and didn't know the end of the story? Stockdale told Jim, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I will not trade. So, while walking with Stockdale, Jim asked, "'Who didn't make it out?' "'Oh, that's easy,' Stockdale said. "'The optimists.' "'The optimists? I don't understand,' Jim said, now completely confused given that what he said a 100 meters earlier. "'The optimists. They were the ones who said, "'We're going to be out by Christmas, "'and Christmas will come and Christmas will go. "'Then they would say, "'We're going to be out by Easter.' And Easter will come, and Easter will go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it will be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Another long pause, and more walking. Then he turned to Jim and said, This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So optimists keep thinking they will be free soon, but they never face the reality that they may never get out. And as a result, they were constantly disappointed and many died in their cells. But the realists dealt with facts, the reality of their current circumstances. They were the ones who survived. This formulation became known as the Stockdale Paradox. Have faith, but confront reality. In the situation we're living right now, no one knows the end of this story. We can imagine many things. Some are really thriving now, but some will want to go back to what they had. Mark Pollock, an amazing man who first lost his sight And after conquering this huge life change, he then had a near-death home accident where he fell through a third-story window and then had to face paralysis. Also shares in his blog the dilemma of realist versus optimist, the paradox of Stockdale. Mark questioned, while going through his recovery, what I do not know is, should I be super positive and say I will make a full recovery? Or do I risk being Stockdale optimist? Or do I start preparing myself for never walking again? Where is the line between being realistic and giving up? With my loss of hearing, I question that too. How to keep the faith that I will regain my hearing without being disillusioned and at the same time having to live with my current situation? We are still dealing with the pandemic If for you this is a great time in your life and you are thriving and doing well, congratulations and carry on because all your good doing and energy will spill around you and will inspire many to keep on going. If on the contrary you keep asking yourself, when is this going to end, why me? You may hear in this episode a new idea or point of view that might help you. Psychologist John Leach has spent his career studying survival, and there are a few wisdom points we can take from him. He says, we're all day-to-day survivors. We are alive today because from childbirth, our behavior has adapted to our own particular environment. And I will add that we're all alive today because all our ancestors were great day-to-day survivors. Leach also says, the danger arises when we are forced outside of our adapted environment. This suggests that there are two types of survival behavior, intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic survival is supported by our daily regular routine behaviors within our normal environment. Extrinsic survival refers to those new behaviors we need to survive in an environment or situation not previously experienced, from a shipwreck to a kidnapping, from a fire in an office block to an airline crash in the jungle. And right now, I can say that many of our daily regular routines have changed. Our intrinsic and extrinsic survival are affected nowadays. On the other hand, we can face a short-term disaster or or situation or event or a long-term Term one. In short term disasters, rescue and post traumatic adjustment comes very soon. In long term disaster, we don't even know if the rescue will come. Once it becomes clear that rescue will not happen soon, those who survive move into the phases of adaptation and consolidation. Leach's description of adaptation is worth quoting in full. During the period of adaptation, there is a slight initial decomposition of a victim's psychology. There is a breaking of the links of his or her previously learned behavior. Once broken, the survivor's behavior can be adapted and rebuilt to better feed the new environment. Initially, there is a natural reluctance to believe that the old environment has been torn away during the period of impact and consequently denial, Crying, anger, and weakness are frequent reactions. The period of recoil follows, which is a farther breakdown in the psychological bonds shown by despair, grief, depression, and so on. Only once the victim is through this period can new survival behaviors be developed. Adaptation is breaking and unlearning, followed by consolidation, during which the new circumstances though they might not be the wanted ones and they might be hostile they are accepted as real and the survivor begins to function again this is easier said than done for those going through these it's another story but the important thing is to understand that accepting a situation as real this is the realistic part does not imply staying stuck there and not doing anything. But it does help to start moving again, walking towards a possible different situation. This is the optimistic side. The study of survivors also repeatedly endorsed the insight that having a value system, a sense of identity, a purpose for one's existence, increases the odds of survival and resiliency a personal sense of spirituality, morality, values, and meaning. This purpose does not need to be grandiose, but must be above all clear and able to be broken down into concrete steps. Arguably, the most important job of a leader in a crisis is to consistently articulate this purpose and connect each day's task to it. So, envisioning both the positive things and the negative things are necessary. Why? In their paper on the Stockdale Paradox, authors von Bergen and Martin Bressler point to previous studies that show that when people focus only on positive thoughts about the future, they literally trick their minds into thinking they have already succeeded and do not need actual efforts to attain something perceived as already acquired. However, completely disregarding the positive thinking is also not effective. With purely negative thoughts, people convince themselves that they have already lost the goal, so again, there's no need to make the efforts necessary to achieve it. What for? It's a balance between what's possible and dealing with the current situation. So a very important thing also is to get up each day with determination, not entrapped by the failures or the situations of the previous days. In coaching with my clients, we work on creating what's impossible, at 10x goal, but also visualize obstacles, what can stand between them and their goal in certain amount of time. We use faith and optimism to create and visualize goals and dreams, and then use realism to see the current situation, current obstacles, future possible obstacles, and work on that and looking for actions to move forward, creating a purpose that will keep them moving forward, having a value system that will support their path, and building an identity along the way that of a person who can reach their goal, that dream, their dream. And in all these matter of finding the balance between optimism and realism, there is a very useful tool it is used by very high performance gurus, sports stars, surgeons, military personnel. And no, it's not meditation, that is also very useful and valuable. And no, it's not energetic work, that is also very useful and powerful. It is the daily practice of gratitude. Yes, gratitude. Two psychologists, Dr. Robert Emmons of the University of California, and the Dr. Michael McCullough I think I'm pronouncing it right of the University of Miami have done a lot of research on gratitude and they have studied thousands of people from ages from 8 to 80 and found that people who practice gratitude consistently report a host of benefits in the physical realm stronger immune system less bothered by aches and pains lower their blood pressure And they sleep longer and feel more refreshed upon waking up. In the terms of psychological things, they feel uh, more positive emotions. They're more alert, alive, awake. They feel more joy and pleasure. And they're more optimistic and more happy. In their social area, they're more generous, more compassionate, more forgiving, more outgoing. They feel less lonely and isolated. And why do you think this gratitude has these transformative effects on people's lives? Well, Edmonds highlights three reasons in particular. Number one, gratitude allows us to celebrate the present. It magnifies positive emotions, and this is an important point. Research on emotions shows that positive emotions wear off quickly. Our emotional system likes newness, novelty, change. We adapt to positive life circumstances so that before too long, the new car, the new spouse, the new house, they don't feel so new and exciting anymore. But gratitude makes us appreciate the value of something and when we appreciate the value of something, we extract more benefits from it. We are less likely to take it for granted. Number two, gratitude blocks toxic negative emotions such as envy resentment, regret, emotions that can destroy our happiness. And this makes sense. You cannot feel regret and gratefulness at the same time, or resentment and gratefulness at the same time. There is even recent evidence, including a 2008 study by psychologist Alex Wood in the Journal of Research in Personality, showing that gratitude can reduce the frequency and duration of episodes of depression. Number three is that grateful people are more stress resistant. There is a number of studies showing that in the face of serious trauma, adversity, and suffering, if people have a grateful disposition, they will recover more quickly. And listen again, they will recover more quickly. It doesn't mean that they're not going to go through a painful situation or that they're not going to feel hardship but they will recover more quickly. Gratitude for many years implied just be grateful with what you have, conform with what you have, but we need to remove the word just or change the word conform. Gratitude means to stop and shift your perception and attention to something that you have, that you value, a relationship, a pet, the fact that you're breathing, that you're awake, that you're healthy. You're shifting your attention to your interoception, to what's inside your skin. Even when it's about something outside, the feeling is inside you. And as Andrew Huberman says, the studies show that it releases serotonin and in a longer time oxytocin, especially when thinking about relationship. And that shift provides a number of positive things. It's known to improve immunity like we said before. And there's a positive effect to other neurochemical systems in the brain, including some spillover to the dopamine system. And that restores our optimism and the feeling of what's possible. And that dopamine system allows us to think that there is possibility, that there is future. Because dopamine is related to motivation, to going forward. So gratitude is not complacency. It's shifting our brain into a mode of possibility. But how, if we think only about the current, the thing that we have right now, can we trigger the shift to thinking of something in the future, something that is possible? That is because gratitude triggers the release of these chemicals, as Andrew Huberman says, which make us feel that everything is okay in the now, in the current situation. So we can think of a future because we are okay now. We can think of possibilities because we are good now or great now. My internal landscape is okay, so I can focus on the external world and what is possible. Now just because gratitude is good, it doesn't mean it's always easy. Practicing gratitude can be at odds with some deeply ingrained psychological tendencies or our current emotional situation. Sadguru says gratitude is not an attitude. Gratitude is something that flows out of you when you are overwhelmed by the recognition of what you have received. Now, there are many different exercises and forms of practicing gratitude and help people cultivate a stronger sense of gratitude in their day-to-day life. To develop your gratitude, you might want to keep a gratitude journal. Spend a few minutes each day in the morning and or before going to bed writing about something you are grateful for. This doesn't have to be a long or complex process. Simply listing two or three items each day and focusing on the feelings will help. You can also reframe experiences. This can be used in many ways. And finding a new point of view of a situation that draws out the positive facts or at least brings out a different way of seeing the situation can help a lot. Focus on your senses. That's another thing you can do. Edmond suggests taking moments to focus on what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you touch and feel can help you gain a greater appreciation of the world around you and what it means to be alive. This is what we now call mindfulness. There is no one formula, so explore and do that which feels more natural to you. There's the pono exercise, joining a challenge, having a gratitude journal, doing the five-minute journal. There's many gratitude experiences. I, for example, with my meditation, think of seven people I'm grateful for at the current moment or in the past. Seven situations that I'm happy that are happened in my life in the past or that will happen in the future. And I visualize them as done and feel the happiness of having that happen. And not also seven things that are happy that I have in my life. The key to this practice is the more intense it feels, the better it works. You can do this for 10 seconds, a minute. It takes no time. And the ripple effects in your life are immense. As the poet Rumi says, wear gratitude like a cloak and it will feed every corner of your life. And I leave you with these questions. After listening to the Stockdale Paradox, is there any area of your life where you can apply it? Do you lean more towards optimism or realism? What are your deepest beliefs? What is your purpose? What values can help you move forward? Do you know anyone who has attained the results you want to have? What traits do these people have? that could help you in your journey? What are you really committed to? And what are you going to do about it? What can you be grateful for? I leave you with these questions. I know they're big ones and they can take you a while. But I really encourage you to sit down and reflect. And if you don't do daily gratitude exercise, consider starting. It will bring an immense flow of happiness to your life. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like it and find it has stories and information that others can benefit from, please share it. Many ask me how to support this podcast, and now the best way is to subscribe on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, and you can also leave us on Apple Podcasts a review and a rate of five stars. (laughs) If there's a topic that you would like me to include in this podcast please contact me and also for any questions that arise from this or any other episode and as always a huge huge hug and kisses to you change maker.